Thank you for being here tonight and being a part of our celebration. And as you sit down, I'd love for you, if you have your Bibles, you can take them. And you can turn to the book of Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, if not, uh, the scripture is going to be on the screens for you. But tonight um, is a special night. And if you've been around here, uh, each and every year we celebrate because once you turn 100, you're just old. And so you got to celebrate every year. So 110, we celebrate. And every year I start by reading out of the, our history book because I believe something about history. When you look back on history, it gives you a picture of your past. But I really believe at the same time it gives you a glimpse of the future you hope one day could be and by God's grace one day will be. You see, one day there was a group of people that believed there should be a church here in Yorba Linda. And because of those pioneers, each year on our birthday, um, we read from this book because it is a part of our DNA. And it is the foundation of everything we do today. And so in, in the summer of 1911... And there was a group of residents in Yorba Linda, a then rural community northeast of Anaheim, California. They came together to discuss what they believe was one of the area's fundamental needs. It was a good, solid Christian education for their children. And the June 4th Union Sunday School met in the home of Mr. and Mrs. W.L. Stewart, and they drew over 20 residents, more than half of the town's population in that time, which the town's population was 35. Organizers, Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Dorsey, they oversaw a census of this group, which revealed that most were either friends or Methodist. And since there was a majority of friends at the meeting that participated, they decided to contact the closest fringe church, which was about 20 miles away in Whittier, to see if they could establish a fringe church in Yorba Linda. And on August 10th, 1912, these members came together and the new church was formed. The church building was dedicated on the following day, August 11th, and the Friends Church Sunday School began with four classes and an enrollment of 51. W. Trueblood is the first, was the first superintendent, and these friends became an official church in November of 1912. Many in the community arrived on foot or by horse and buggy to attend the first gathering together at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Later on in the history, they built their first sanctuary which cost a whopping $1,513.63, included donated labor. The rectangular structure was designed with a small foyer and a bell tower. And thanks to the generosity of the congregation, the building, which still sits on a small hill facing east towards School Street, was dedicated debt-free. If you drive now by Clyde's Chicken, we are right next door to Clyde's. And that is our church. And as we celebrate 110 years today, you've heard me say it, and I believe it with all of my heart, that the best days for Friends Church are not behind us, they are still ahead of us. Our best days are not behind us, but ahead of us, and I am filled with hope, not because of anything we do, but because of the great God that we serve, that His Word tells us that He is still moving, that He is still transforming lives, and that He is still using ordinary people like you and me today. One of my favorite scriptures of late, and this was one that when I got in my daughter's car, it was a post-it note on her speedometer, and it is Romans 15, 13, and it says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of all hope fill you, and then because of God's presence, and what he's doing in your life, that there is an overflowing of hope 
in your life because of what he's doing in you and now what he wants to actually do through you. I am a person today that is filled with hope. And I believe God is going to do something great in the future of friends because that is the God we serve. And as I was preparing for this message, I started thinking about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I started thinking about, um, I wonder if Jesus ever lost hope. I mean, think about it. I know he was God, but he came down in human flesh. And scripture says that he was fully God, yet fully man, which meant he was feeling and experiencing all the emotions and pain and things that we do. So I'm guessing on the way to the cross, when he cried out to his father, if you so will, let this cup pass from me. I'm betting in that moment, there was some moments where he goes, I'm not sure about all of this. I don't know if he lost hope in that moment, but he said, but your will be done and not mine. I'm going to think in those trying times when all of the disciples turned his back on him, I wonder what he thought in his humanity in that moment. See, in his ministry, there was something about Jesus. He was always being watched. Every word was being scrutinized. Everything he did and seemed to come in contact with, there was a continual challenge from everyone all the way up until his death. Did he ever lose hope? Let me ask you, have you lost hope tonight? Because of a circumstance or maybe a marriage or a health issue that you just think will never change or can never be restored? I'm sure most of us in this room have lost hope at some point. Have you ever lost hope in your church or in the church? I know this as a pastor over this last season, all around the world, there are people that lost hope in God, lost hope in the church, lost hope in leaders and pastors, and that has come with a cost. I was reading the other day about some numbers that back up what I'm saying. In 2021, 4,500 churches closed across the country. As of 2021, over the past decade, average attendance of the average church fell from 137 people to 65 people attending. 54% of churches have fewer than 10 conversions per year, and almost 10% have nobody coming to faith in Christ. 33% of people say that they have never invited anyone to church in the last six months or year. And yet I look at all those statistics about church and people, and I just believe that we have reason to be hopeful. See, we have reason to be hopeful because God is doing something in us and through us. Tonight, we're going to baptize some people. In a minute, we're going to celebrate. Over these three services, we're baptizing 32 people that have committed their lives to Jesus Christ and have found faith in Jesus. And lots of them are from the next generation. And you know why that gives me hope? Because our church was started with the next generation in mind. It was started with Sunday school because we wanted to care for our kids. We wanted to care for the next generation and that DNA lives on today. And you see, I'm just crazy enough to believe that God's not done with his church. And he is definitely not done with friends. And so I'm filled with hope. And tonight I pray after we walk through our story and we see what God says in Scripture, that you will be filled with hope as well. If you brought your journals, you can turn to page 128, 128, and we're continuing our series, Understanding Jesus. And in this parable, Jesus begins to help us understand what it means to be people that are filled with hope. Because Jesus invites everyone to the table tonight. 
And here in this section, you're going to see that people were out to get him. They were watching for him to mess up. And yet he looked at them and said, well, I want you to be people that are filled with hope. And I want you to know who's welcomed at my table. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 if you would join me. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. So Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But in that moment, they remained silent. So take hold of the man, he healed him, and then Jesus sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. And when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowliest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalted themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, this was true for the Pharisees and the leaders of the day. Uh, they invited him over for lunch. And as they invited him over for lunch, they were watching him carefully to see if they could catch him in a lie or an act that would discredit him and his claim of being the Messiah. And that phrase, carefully watched, there in verse 1, it translates that he was under great scrutiny, sort of like a, a sinister espionage. And so Jesus is being watched, but think about it. So are we. Those of us that claim Jesus as our Savior, people are watching us all the time. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says this, you yourselves, you are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? If you were a follower of Jesus tonight, do you understand that, that really you're being read uh, like a letter as Christ's representatives in the world? Our church is being read like a, a letter as people observe us and how we live for Jesus Christ. See, we're to be that living, breathing example and we're supposed to be a message of hope to a lost and dying world. And the result of our ministry in and through this place, it gives a living testimony of who Jesus is and how Jesus loves. And one of the things I am so hope-filled about is because I know the church has lasted over 2,000 years. And though all churches are closing all over the world, we're still here some 110 years later and I really do believe the best is yet to come. So why has the church overall, why has it resisted the demise that has faced every other institution in the world? It's because of these words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 16. In verse 18, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. 
I will build my church. And so the church is going to be something that lasts because it has the stamp of Jesus Christ on it. And I think the people that choose to attend church and our church, they're making one of the most important decisions they could ever make. Think about it. Discipleship, how you view the Bible, your view of Jesus Christ, our emphasis on sharing God's love around the corner and around the world. You see, your faith is ultimately being shaped by the church you are a part of. And in return, as a living testimony, your community and your county should be different because your church is actually in it. And I began thinking about the difference we've made each and every Christmas, and it is that time again. Hard to believe. But every year, we ask you to give to those who are in need. And we have targeted over uh, North and South Orange County, every foster child within the system, that they have a Christmas. And since we started this, it now has expanded to Riverside. And we have a goal this year of creating 5,000 boxes of love so that every foster kid has a Christmas. And you have done it each and every year, so I don't think it's going to be any different this year. What is different for us is this, that they kept asking us, you know, when you guys take your 5 or 10 or 15 or 25 or 50 boxes, how many ever you're going to take tonight, when you take those, you know those boxes aren't very pretty, right? Right? You know that. You guys look like you're just kind of there right now, right? Yeah, it's good. You know they're not very pretty, and you really wouldn't want that under your Christmas tree. And we began thinking, neither do the children that receive them. <laughs> I don't know about you, but a cardboard box not wrapped or looking nice isn't something that I really love to open on Christmas. And so we created these boxes of love. And what's going to happen is you're going to take those ugly boxes, and you're going to go fill them up, and you're going to bring them back, and then our team's going to create these gifts that are going to go under the tree for 5,000 young people all across our county in Riverside. And you make a difference. And you shine a bright light. Last year, I believe it was over $750,000 that you gave of products and money to change the life of a child. And I just believe you're going to do it again. Because see, the testimony of this church is not what we do in here. It's what God teaches us and how we draw close to him. And then we go outside of this place and we make a difference for him. And so tonight as you leave, we're going to ask you to pick up a hundred of these boxes and go fill them up at the store. And I'm not kidding, like a hundred. You can do it, all right? So we're going to do that together, all right? Oh my gosh, you are so bad right now. We're going to do that together, right? I know it's Saturday night. I tell everybody else, you're my favorite service. Now I'm if you keep just acting like that, I, I can't tell them that anymore. So come on. We are going to go change the lives of children because that's what Christ has told us to do. So go back to the story. Jesus comes in and he's ready to eat dinner. And he heals this dude. So there's this guy standing out there and he's got some problems and Jesus lays his hands on him and then he sends him away. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. He goes in. So there's commotion going on in the house. And the guys grab their places and they start jockeying for position. And then Jesus comes and he just says, hey, let me tell you a little story. When somebody has a feast, don't try and get the best seat in the house. He says, because somebody else more important, which happens all the time, might be there. And the host is going to have to come and kick you out. Now, Jesus was giving them a picture of who he wanted them to be and how he wanted them to think. 
And he says, listen, somebody more important is going to come and they're going to have to humiliate you and they're going to have to take you and put you aside. He said, instead of doing that and waiting for that, why don't you take the worst seat in the house? Why don't you go hang out at the kids' table? Grab some chicken nuggets and some mac and cheese and you hang out there. And then the host can come over to you and say, hey, I got a better seat for you. I've saved it for you. Why don't you come over with me? And you get to go to the adult table and eat adult food and enjoy adult company. But he said, listen, if you exalt yourself, it's not going to be good. So you're going to be humble. But if you humble yourself, then Jesus comes along. He says, hey, I'm going to exalt you. Now, you remember in all these parables who Jesus is talking to you. He's talking to the Pharisees, really, and these scribes, these religious leaders. He's talking to, to my people, us pastors and leaders. And he had just condemned them for who they were and how they acted in Luke chapter 11, verse 43. Here's what he said to them. He said, hey, woe to you Pharisees. Why? Because you love the most important seat in the house. <laughs> you love the most important seat in the synagogue and respectful seats, greetings, and greetings in the marketplace. See, they wanted people to talk good of them. And they wanted the best seats. And Jesus comes along and he said, here's how my kingdom works. <laughs> Don't jockey for the best seat. Go after the worst seat. And so after he shares all of this, he knows that they're listening. And we go on in verse 12 through 14. Then Jesus says to the host, hey, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. See, Jesus saw that the host was choosing his guests from a place of pride and status in the world. And Jesus said, don't just have seats for people that can repay you, but invite those who could never repay you. And he wasn't saying it's not wrong to have friends and family and gather. That's beautiful. But what Jesus was saying is this life is not just about you and your needs. It's actually about seeing the needs of others and being willing to give them preference and respect. And I don't know if you know this, if you have ever been a person that has been generous. Many of you in this room are. You just know that there's something really beautiful about giving a gift that can never be repaid. You know when you give to someone and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt it's never coming back to you. There is something that God does in you. And he says, we want to be people that are radically generous. And as I read a couple weeks ago, Paul says, hey, make sure that you excel in this grace of giving. Because that's what he was talking about. There's something that happens when you're generous and not expecting anything in return. And what Jesus was really saying in this moment was this, hey, everybody is welcomed at my table. Everybody. Think about it. He still welcomes you and me in all of our brokenness and our hurt and our baggage. And he says, Matthew, you're welcomed at the table. And I might not seem paralyzed or crippled or have any de deformities on the physical body, but he knows inside of me and he knows my heart just like he knows yours. And he says, hey, all of you, sinners and broken people, you're welcomed at my table. 
You see, when Jesus is at the table, the table's just for everyone. And I believe the same is true for his church. Emily Brunner said this, the church that lives for itself will die by itself. A church exists by its mission as fire exists by burning. I leave for India on Tuesday uh, and I will take a, a vision team there and I'm going to visit firsthand a few of our 42 schools that we have built and some of our 10,000 students we have in those schools. And I'm scheduled to have dinner with one of our graduates and her family that grew up in a sewer pipe. And today she is now a doctor and she is thriving. And I get to have dinner with her and I get to hear her story once again. And I get to be reminded how this church has been a church that has gone around the corner and around the world for the least of these. This church has been radically generous. And this church has been inviting people to the table for 110 years. And because of you, I get to go and represent you. And I get to walk in and I get to be showered. And when I mean showered, you can ask my wife, showered with flowers. And I get to walk up school to schools, and I should show you, with giant banners that say, thank you, Matthew, and my pictures on it. They love it. And every time I'm there, I just thank God for you. Because he's allowed you to be people that have opened the table for those you might not ever meet this side of heaven. And I just want to tell you, if your time and your treasure and your talent, you just will never know the impact your kingdom investment has made in someone's life this side of eternity. And Jesus was saying... Hey, the table's not just for you, your Belindans who live in the land of gracious living. <laughs> the table is for everyone. The table is for everyone. And he says that to us about the church. That the church here in your Belinda, that the church, our amigos, brothers and sisters, that the church in Eastvale and in Orange and Waymaker and Anaheim, that the church is for everyone. And so we live, I pray, with an eternal mindset. Because as a follower of Jesus, when you live this out in your life, Jesus says you're not going to be repaid here on this earth. But one day you're going to be repaid in heaven. Verse 14, he concludes and says this, you will be blessed. And although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, I just unashamedly, if you are a member of this church or this is your church home, I just ask you to give of your time and your talent and your treasure. For all that we do in and through this place wouldn't happen without you. And we are radically generous because we live with that eternal perspective. There is a tree located outside of Calcutta, India, and it is known as the Great Banyan Tree. It was recorded to be the largest tree specimen in the world by the Guinness Book of World Records in 1989. And the great banyan tree is believed to be at least 250 years old. And one of the crazy things about this tree is that it survives without its main trunk. And that trunk decayed and had to be removed in 1925. 
It became infected by fungi after it was struck by two cyclones. So in 1925, the main trunk of the tree was amputated to keep the remainder healthy. And over a thousand foot road was built around its circumference, but the tree continues to spread beyond it. And now the tree expands almost five acres. It's said to look more like a forest than just one main tree. And the question you might ask, since the main tree was amputated, main trunk was amputated in 1925, how does it grow, let alone survive? Well, interestingly, it grows from its large aerial roots, which run vertically back into the ground. The tree, as its tallest point, is 82 feet tall and has a circumference, listen to this, of around 1,945 feet. You can't kill this tree. And you can't see its roots because, like I said, the main root had been uprooted. Listen, friends, here's what I believe. The more that we as followers of Jesus in this place are following Jesus and trusting Jesus with our lives, the greater our vertical relationship is with him personally and corporately, the greater our impact will be horizontally. See, God is not going to do anything horizontally and grow us unless we are growing this way. Because it is only when we are growing in Jesus Christ and trusting him and living for him and growing deep roots in him that out of those roots begin to grow other things and reproduce its like kind. See, for us, God wants to continually reproduce, but he has to have something that is reproducible. And he's looking for you and me to become this community of authentic Christ followers that are truly committed and sold out to Jesus Christ and believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is God and he has put us right here to serve him and to honor him in and through this place. Our mission statement says this, and I want you to say it out loud as I always do, so say it like I can just brag on you tomorrow because remember, you're my favorite service. Here we go. Ready? Becoming a community of authentic Christ followers compelled to change our world. We are becoming this community. We are in process of becoming and reflecting this one Jesus Christ. Why? Because of God's love for us. And because of that love, he compels us to go and change the world. So what does that mean? Well, as I have about eight minutes, I'm going to give you a high level of what we believe God's calling us to do and who he's calling us to be. You saw our pastors come on and say in the next 10 years, here's what God's calling us to do in the next 10 years and who he's calling us to believe, to be. We believe that as a church, we are to invite as many people to the table as we possibly can. We believe that we are to continue to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ and we are to extend his arms of love around the corner, and around the world. And after 110 years, God's love still compels us to go out horizontally and be world changers. So we're going to do that. And we're going to continue to go around the corner, around the world, and care for the least of these. But we're also going to do three things. We are going to be planning new campuses. We are going to be planning churches. And we are going to be developing the next generation of leaders. And so our elders and our staff have a picture of the next 10 years and what God is calling us to do. And over these next 10 years, it's going to wrap up a lot. It's going to wrap up a a season of ministry. Over the next 10 years, that'll put me at 40 years at Friends. At that point, you've had enough me. So, you know, we got a lot of things to do in the next 10 years. And we believe God's calling us to plant 10 campuses, which we've already planted six 
to plant 40 churches and to raise up 200 new generational leaders. 10, 40, 200 over the next 10 years. And here's what's already happened. Some of you know uh, that I am the superintendent of the Friends denomination, which means I oversee 40 churches in California, Arizona, and Nevada. And we began casting vision, a bigger vision for our denomination, and this was part of it. What I understood about the denomination was this, that without this church being the catalyst church, all of that might not come to fruition. So we are joining forces with 39 other churches, but we are going to be the catalyst church that drives this. And so together, we're going to double the amount of churches we have. We have 40 churches now. We're going to go to 80 churches our church is going to have 10 campuses, so we have six now, not including online. So over the next years, we're going to plan another three campuses at least. And then we're going to raise up 200 leaders. Here's what I believe about the next generation. The next generation is already leading in this place, all over the place. And I'm going to make spaces and places for them because you made a space and place for me. And when I started here at 22 years old, I had no idea what I was doing. There's still many days I have no idea what I was doing. But you gave me a place. And we're going to help those people, the next generation, have a place of ministry in this place. Because they are the voice of now, not tomorrow. And they are the voice of what God is going to do in and through this place for years and years to come. And so we're going to raise up 200 new leaders. And guess what? We're going to develop and deploy them. And we're going to deploy them to 40 churches and 10 campuses. And we're going to continue to develop them here, and then we're going to give them away. You know why? Because we're inviting them to the table to learn and to grow, and then we're going to give them away so the kingdom can be better. So don't get too close to anybody, because they're going to come as leaders, and then they're going to go. And then you're going to be mad at me because they're going. But guess what? They need to go so they can be all God's called them to be. You saw them up here tonight. Aaron and Dave and Tom and Kyle, who's at Orange. Most of them grew up here. Kyle, who's at Orange, was here when nobody even, you didn't even know he was here. And we were best friends back then. And he was my tech guy in the sound booth. And he was at Mariner's Church for 20 years. And now he's leading a campus. And I could look at Aaron. Aaron started as a, a blast helper on our summer program 15, 16 years ago. And I just believe that we're going to deploy 200 new leaders. Now, here's the cool thing. We've started this thing called the Leadership Journey. And this year, we've done it for two years, and we built it slowly. But this year was our first official kind of start. So we have 28 young leaders that are in the room now. And there's going to be a picture on the screen. You can see 28 leaders that are sitting around tables, and they are figuring out their next steps in ministry and in leadership and what God has for them. So out of 200, we have 28 in a room. And next year, we're hoping that doubles to 48. 58, 68, whatever God has, and we're going to develop and deploy them into ministry. And so for us, we can't wait to see what God does because he's not done growing our friend's family. And as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, then we get to go because his love compels us to go and change the world. So today I'm inviting you to help us with all the things that go on here in your Belinda, but to help us expand God's kingdom. And I'm going to ask you to help us with the next generation. There's going to be a lot that we're going to do for the next generation, and some of that's going to include Friends Christian School, and you're going to hear more about that because we believe that God has called us to impact 
and change the next generation for Jesus Christ. And so I'm inviting you to be a part of that. See, at the table, everyone was welcome. There's one scripture out of that text that we read tonight that, that, that kind of caught me a little bit off guard. And I said, why did this happen? It was the, the dude that was hanging outside the, the house and he had some stomach problems and he needed to be healed. It's almost like a, a passing verse because Jesus goes and heals him and then he sends him on his way. And I'm not sure why he did that because I thought he probably would have invited him to the table, right? Maybe. But here's what I think. I think Jesus did it on purpose. Because I think a lot of times people talk about what they want to do. And they never go do it. <laughs> and I think Jesus was saying, I'm not just going to be a person who comes and speaks. I'm actually going to show you. And I'm going to do what I've come to do. And I think he heals the person. And then he looks at the Pharisees and the scribes and he goes, bring the paralyzed and the crippled and bring all of them here. Because we're to care for the least of these. And he said, I'm just not going to tell you. I'm actually going to show you. And I'm going to do it. And I think it's a beautiful picture for us tonight. A lot of times in the church, we talk about how, man, we're going to live for Jesus Christ. And then Monday comes. And we forget. And I want to be a church that doesn't forget. I want to be a church that just doesn't come here and hear maybe a halfway decent message and hear some good music and watch people get baptized and then, then go out and just forget. See, you have been invited to the table. And you are the testimony of Jesus Christ, Paul said. You are the letter that's being written. And God's counting on you, friends. And he's counting on me. Not just to talk a good talk, but to actually show the world. You know what the world can't deny? They can't deny love. They can't deny being loved. They can come to you and say, why in the world are you doing this? And we just get to say, because, because of God's great love for us. They can't argue with love. And so we're going to be a church that loves the least of these. And we're going to welcome everyone to the table. And we're going to let the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit does. He convicts. He challenges. He changes. We, I pray, will become great investors and inviters. Because the table is for everyone. Tonight, we get to see a picture of the table of Jesus Christ. See, we get to see students and some adults be baptized. And then we're going to celebrate. And you can't celebrate like you, you just did when I asked you to read the mission statement. That was kind of puny. You got to actually celebrate, okay? You got to like clap and cheer because this is a celebration. And when these people go down in the water, what they're saying is, I am dying to my old self. And I, I am identifying with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And there's nothing that happens in the water. They've already made a decision on the inside. Their life has changed, but they are showing us an outward experience of what God has already done. And they are being baptized. And when they come up out of the water, what they're saying is, I am a new person in Christ. The old has been buried and it's passed away, and I want to live for Jesus. And so we're going to cheer this next generation on. And we're going to be a church that celebrates God's goodness. So tonight, here's what I want you to do. I would love for you to stand as we close. And I want to remind you of this. That the gospel of Jesus Christ has not changed. 
that God's power has not diminished and people still needing rescue and still need to know that there is hope. Let's be the church that brings hope to the world. Let's be the church that becomes great inviters and investors. Let's be the church that develops the next generation. And let's watch God do what only God can do. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your love. We thank you that you are in this place and we thank you for 110 years. And we thank you, God, that you are growing your church far and wide. For our six campuses, we say thank you. For the 10 that are gonna happen and the 40 churches and the 200 leaders that are gonna be developed, God, we say thank you. For the lives that are gonna be changed around the corner and around the world and through boxes of love, we say thank you. God, I believe in your church and I believe in your people and I believe that this world needs the hope of Jesus. So God, may we be great inviters and investors. And may we just understand that everyone is welcomed at your table. Thank you for allowing us tonight to be here in this place. Thank you, thank you, thank you for those people 110 years ago that said, I think there needs to be a church in your Belinda. I pray God, if they could see this church now, that they would be thrilled that all of their sacrifice and money and time, they would look down and say, oh, it was so worth it for the seeds we planted. That God, you are doing something great. And the best is yet to come. So tonight we celebrate, we praise you and we honor you. And we give you this time as we baptize our people unto you. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.